Well, I'd like to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to continue on with some things out of David's life. You guys been um, enjoying it as much as I have? I've been just, I've read through David's life probably more than any other section of scripture when it comes to stories in the Bible. And I, I see something new every time, but this time I felt like he is just a timely, he's a man for the hour. And the world's in desperate need of people that are, as the scripture translates it, men after God's own heart, but really what it means is people who carry God's heart, people who represent him because on the inside of us, there is something that just knows how to live and do like God does. And today I'd like to share with you a moment that I think reveals why God had him in such a, an arduous process. I mean, the poor man, he went from hero of Israel, right-hand man to the king, armor-bearer to the king of Israel, beloved people singing songs that were in the top 40, and, and he was just the man of the hour, and now he's being hunted, as he put it, like a dog or like a flea in the wilderness by the very people he used to lead in battle, and all he's got by his side are 600 now miscreants, the offshoots of, you know, the people that were rejected by everyone else they're whiny they're in debt they're distressed and just not your kind of people that you want now if you want to have a pity party in your own honor these are the people you'd invite but as we saw David took these men that God brought to him and at the end of it turned them into mighty men because what was in David became contagious. But this is a day, this, this was an hour in David's life where he nearly brought things in, where he could have become King Saul II, rather than be David, the man whom Jesus, when Jesus would come, think of that the Son of God would become incarnate in the earth, and the angel came and said, oh, and he's gonna sit on the throne of his father, David. Of all the patriarchs, all the kings who ever lived, who's the one he's going to be known as? The son of David. He said, I want to be identified. If there's any human who's ever lived, I want the whole world to connect me with that man. There was something about the way David lived his life, something about the way that he went about decision-making that God said, that is, that's me right there. You get it, guys? Watch him. Watch how he handles hardship. Watch what he does when life pulls the rug out from under him. Keep your eye on that man because that's what I'm looking for in this world, a man who has my heart. And so um, there's wisdom in, uh, wisdom from above and then there's wisdom that comes from below. Wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's reasonable, which means easily entreated or persuadable, full of mercy and good fruits, and it's unwavering without hypocrisy. Now you might be able to say, well wait a minute, if it's unwavering, then how can it also be easy to persuade? And, and the difference is that when we have convictions, right, if we have things, we just know this is God's way, this is God's word. It's an authority that comes from somewhere deeper than our own wisdom, deeper from our own understanding, and that has absolute authority. So we can be unwavering in that truth and at the same time be teachable because how many of you know none of us has a full handle on that truth just yet? We're getting closer. I'm a lot closer now than I was 35 years ago. All of us thank God for that. This church and my family most of all. But we're all growing in that. And so there's got to be the ability for people to be able to speak to us, to tell us, hey, you're getting off track right there. What you're reflecting right now, that's not the best you. That's not what Christ in you is all about right now. You are not being true to yourself. I hope you all have friends like that. 
I always make sure I've got at least three in my life. Maybe I'm just that bullheaded that I need three. <laughs> Thank you for not all laughing too hard at that. But there must be people in our lives who can get in our face and say, you're off right now, you're wrong, and us not get offended at them. If you can name those three people, you're blessed. I've told all my kids when they're growing up, I can tell where you're going in life, and I can really tell where anybody's going in life by the three people they have the most, they spend the most time with. The three people that have access to them, that they could take off their verbal censor and just be real with them. That's a really good indicator of where we're going in life, and a really good indicator of are we, uh, are we able to engage with the wisdom from above, which needs to be entreatable. A heart like God's is firm and sure in its convictions, but not stubborn. Stubbornness is not a fruit of the Spirit. I know, can I step in it? Would that be all right? I'm still from out of town. I'll always be a New Yorker. I know that the Dutch pride themselves in stubbornness, which can be a good thing. I put this up. Uh, my daughter, Hatea, came down. Uh, I was ready to preach this last week, but I thought I wanted to let our missionaries go because it was just really good what they were sharing. She looked at it and said, Dad, I thought you said stubborn is a good thing. I said, well, it's a different kind of stubborn. When you're stubborn to say, no, Jesus is the only way and I'm not changing that. That's a good kind of stubborn. But we don't use that word normally. Stubborn usually means you're unwilling to change even if you're wrong. That's stubborn. So we don't want to be that. But we do want to have firm convictions, right? We do want to say, boys are boys, girls are girls. There are some things that are just true and we can be firm about that but not stubborn in things like cultural, you know, this way of singing's better, this way of talking is better. We don't need to be stubborn in those kind of things. When we're tempted to behave our negative emotions, all right, when we're stuck in something and we're ready to just go crashing in and doing something that's not gonna be a reflection of heavenly wisdom, we can tap into heavenly wisdom, you know why? Because we are the source and author of all wisdom living in us. Christ in us always knows what to do. I love how Graham Cook puts it. He said, Holy Spirit is a genius. He always knows what to do. A friend of mine taught me that expression. You know, you don't have to behave your emotions. You can't help but feel them, but you can help but behave them. So you can get angry and sin not. Right? You can be angry, but don't act angry. You don't have to live. Children live and behave their emotions, and that's part of the training process. The fruit of the Spirit, as I've told my kids many a time, is self-control. You can control yourself. Notice the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not just control. Come on, laugh a little bit. The fruit of the Spirit is not controlling everybody around us. How about we start with our own selves? On a good day, I could just about self-control. I have no interest in controlling anybody else. I've never understood people of authority, people in government, people of any kind of authority who get, pow get a power trip out of being in charge. I'm like, man, it's exhausting enough just to keep myself in check. I can't imagine keeping thousands or millions of people in check. That just, that wears me out. God, how do you do it? Well, he's God. It's, He's the only one. Even he doesn't control other people. He says, no, I'm going to give you the spirit of God, and you're going to be self-controlled, so I don't even need to tell you what to do anymore. So let's dive back into David's life. We're in 1 Samuel 25, and we'll show you a moment where David nearly behaved his emotions and nearly acted with such deep sin, he probably would have brought judgment into his kingship, which we'll share more about uh, next, uh, next time. 
Um, so it says chapter 25. This is just after, we don't know, when I say just after, I mean in the story. We don't know how many months or years it's been probably months since David spared Saul's life. When Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, David let him go and he was grieved that he even cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He was so grieved that he even acted with that little passive aggressive or whatever his motive was for doing that thing. And so now, you know, his men are probably mad at him at this point. He has 600 men who are like, dude, you could have ended all this drama in a heartbeat. In fact, we would have done it for you. You'll see in the next chapter, one of his mighty men offers to do it for him next time. So there are probably, some of them at least are murmuring. Some of them have come into an understanding of the mighty men that they are, maybe starting to learn from David's heart. They're so intrigued with them anyway. Who's this guy, man? He's, he's out there. He can kill people one minute, and then he's got his, his harp out. What kind of dude uses a sword and a harp? And he's singing these love songs off in a cave, you know, and he's doing that and it's raw, and then he's gonna cut off Goliath's head. All in one body, that by the way, is manhood. That's what manhood looks like, real manhood. Fierce enough to cut off a giant's head, tender enough to enjoy watching a chick flick with his wife. All oh, some of the men, I'm seeing them shuffle in their seat right now. <laughs> tender enough to love love songs, to be in touch with the heart, not afraid. Most men are comfortable with the enemy without, but not with the enemy within. Getting in touch with the heart, getting in touch with the deep recesses of the inner man, very few men have the courage to do that, but real men do. Don't we? Come on, that was such a weak amen from just one guy. Thank you, Todd. Yeah, we are. Say it like that. You can say it like, yes, where I am. So long as my wife's not the one to tell me. <laughs> I'm going to pull out of that real quick right now. So all of this is going on. And then David gets word that Samuel died. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. I think it's safe to say that David couldn't make the funeral of his spiritual father, of the man. Remember, he went right to Samuel's place in Ramah when he, was, when he first ran away from Saul and they had that, such an encounter with the Holy Spirit. David was there for that, that Saul and all the men who came to arrest David prophesied, it says, they began to worship uncontrollably because it was such a rich atmosphere. This is, if David's gonna run to anybody, he has nobody in the world right now, but at least he had Samuel. And if he could just sneak his way into Ramah, he could get refreshed by the presence of God that that prophet cultivated, but now he's got nothing. Now he is literally and truly all on his own. I don't know if you've had a loss like that. If you, uh, my spiritual father is still very much alive and well. But I can imagine that if I was a young man, David can't be out of his 20s yet at this point. And as a young man, he's got nobody. His father doesn't know how to teach him to be king. Saul's certainly not teaching him how to be king. And now his spiritual father just died and he can't even go to grieve him at his own funeral. Just try to imagine. I mean, you know how Jesus had to go away and mourn because John the Baptist died. Imagine how David's feeling right now. So he's in the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in... 
Maon, which is in that area, whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. Now, it's about 25, 30 miles south of Bethlehem in those 3,000-foot mountains that I was sharing with you about a couple of weeks ago. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the, names, uh, the man's name was Nebal, which means foolish, and his wife's name wife's name was Abigail, which means my father is joyful. What a, you talk about opposites attract. <laughs> the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. The David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now that was the time of year of celebration. That was like harvest time for a shepherd. If you're not making mutton, that's the time you're about to make wool. You're going to make your money. And it's like, uh, so it's the same kind of celebration a shepherd has at that time is what farmers have at harvest time. So they gather in all the workers and they celebrate. They have a few sheep for dinner and it's a big time of feasting. So David heard about this. David's a shepherd, and he sent 10 young men. Verse 5, David said to the young men, Go to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name, and say this to him, Have a long life, peace to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they'll tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. And to your son David. And treating him, offering himself as not just any old servant, but like a son, a love-based servant. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Now that, that's one of those moments. You know David's story so far. We've been tracking with that. David was ministering to Saul, and Saul threw his spear at him. He missed. David went back into the room. It says he missed him twice. Started to minister again. Saul threw another spear to him, Adam. So he left. Then he came back again. And he started ministering to Saul again, always honoring, doing whatever the king told him to do. And then the spear stuck to the wall right next to David's head. So David left until he found out that Jonathan also was getting spears thrown at him. I believe David, we believe David was ready to go back and minister again. And Nabal says, many servants today are each breaking away from his master. You talk about moments that make you want to say, oh. Right, did I get that right? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody says something that is so untrue, so unbelievably, like you're gaslighting me right now level. <laughs> and David is grieving the loss of his spiritual father. His men are upset with him because he didn't kill Saul when he had the chance. He's running for his life, living in caves, sleeping on the ground, and, you know, in that Jewish Western thing with, with him hiding on the mountain and all that kind of thing. And then this dude has the gall to accuse David of bringing it on himself because he left his master. Now we're going to see David and I think really his only major moment of weakness in the wilderness because it says 
that, uh, all right, Nabal went on, he said, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I don't know? He probably knew the rep. Maybe these are some of his ex-employees that are now with David. And they're doing the water, I don't know, whatever. Uh, uh, So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. David heard it and he said, oh, (laughs) that's not in the text. I'm reading, that's between the lines. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So the men girded their swords. David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Now, let's just stop for a minute here. David has been on the edge of Nabal's property, protecting his property. I mean, if you had David and his 600 men, Philistines were not raiding your backyard. Moabites weren't sneaking in to steal some sheep at night. David and his men, remember just one of these dudes killed 6,000 with a spear on a hill of beans. That's who he's got with him, 600 of them like that. Nobody's messing with Nabal's property while David's camped on the edge of it. But Nabal did not ask David to do this. Nabal's lived in this place and somehow he prospered. He had thousands of sheep and goats and whatnot. And then David wasn't asked to do this, but as a free love gift. Remember, David is still defending Israel. Wherever he goes, he is acting like a king, ministering on behalf of the king, even though he's not yet in the throne. And so he gets offended because Nabal said, no, you can't have any sheep. I don't know who you are, and it's probably your fault. If expressing love and service to others comes with an unspoken expectation of repayment, we've set ourselves up for a major offense, haven't we? When we love, when we share the goodness of God with somebody, if we love in a way that expects something in return, that's a, that's a love that falls short of the love of God. We use the term unconditional love, and this is where it comes from. It means I'm gonna benefit your life, I'm gonna do something for you, and even if you don't say thank you for it, I'm still gonna do it again. Why? Because I have freely received and so I can freely give. That's the heart of God. This is the first time that I can find in David's life story where he's not reflecting that heart that he carries. There's something in him. He got offended. Something rose to the surface. Now he's going to take his powerful gift. He's a warrior. He's got men. And he's, going to, he's about to use that to wreak havoc on a man's house. Now it was a dumb idea for Nabal. By the way, anybody like David ever comes and asks you for some sheep, give him a few sheep. All right? We should express gratitude, but our love has got to be a one-way street. I want to commend to you a really good book by Bob Mumford called The Agape Road. And he really digs in on this very subject. Um, There are three different Greek words for love, and one of them, eros, means to love with a hook in it. It means I'm loving you because I can benefit from you. It's the beginning of lust is really what that's about. I don't love you, I'm I'm doing this because I can get something from you that'll bring me pleasure. And that's not God's love. So let's go on. The next, uh, where are we now? We're in verse 15, 14. So one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. 
The men were good to us, though, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were like a wall to us night and day all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Like, they made our job so easy. We, we had no wolves. We had no bears. We had no Philistines. We had no lions, tigers, or bears. We had no Moabites. No problems while they were with us. I don't know why Nabal couldn't just give them a few sheep to eat. He's got plenty. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master. There are 400 bad dudes on the way to us right now, and I've heard some stories about them, and this could be our last day. About our master and against his household, and he's such a worthless man, no one can speak to him. This is going to be a common theme here. So here we have Nabal, and he did something foolish, and nobody could tell him, hey, that's a foolish plan. You're going to bring harm down on your household. Wisdom is being persuadable. Wisdom is even, how many of you have never made a dumb decision? As my friend used to say, liars are friars. So let's, you know, all right. All of us have been ready to make dumb decisions. We thank God that we've had people around us who have stopped us, hopefully, from making that dumb decision. If we don't have friends or we don't hear from the friends who try to talk us out of it, that brings all kinds of misery into our lives. All you graduates, all you kids, teenagers, it's it's now and it never stops. Always be teachable. Always be ready to learn wisdom from those that are in your life. My friend said wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes and not always being needing to make your own. Because that brings more and more pain the further on in life you go. David right now, if he would have made a major mistake, he'd have brought pain into his life. Nabal, it nearly cost him his life. So, it says, verse 18, Abigail hurried, took 200 loaves of bread and a whole bunch of food and stuff. She packed up a feast because she knows the quickest way to a man's heart is where? Through his stomach. You know, I actually, just as a side note, I take, I, I question that. I think that it's actually the other way around. How many women are not deeply attracted to a man who knows how to cook? I'm just saying. I wooed my wife like that. I made stuffed shells for her, Italian style. Hmm. I'm drooling right now thinking about him, and that's when she knew. <laughs> no, she didn't. <laughs> but they were really good. Men learn how to cook, young men. You want to find that Proverbs 31 wife? Learn how to cook and find out what she likes and how she likes it cooked free tip no extra cost verse 19 so she said to her young men go on before me i'm coming after you and she didn't tell her husband nabal it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold david and his men were coming down toward her so she met them now david said Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. Now listen carefully. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male who belonged to him. This is the first time, you can go back and reread all of David's story. This is the first moment that I can find where David began to turn the attention on him. He didn't get offended when, you know, they were singing the songs, Saul's slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. He didn't get offended at Saul when Saul was upset about that. He didn't get offended at the spears thrown at him. He kept his heart, he, was, he kept honorable, and here we have for the first time, 
David saying, may God do so to the enemies of David. He made it all about him for the first time. Before service today, one of the, this old song kind of bubbled up. I think it was Patty had the song that was in her heart. It's all about you, Jesus. And it goes on. It's not about me. We should sing that together. It's not about me. I want to haunt you with that line. It's not about me. Whenever we get offended because somebody doesn't do unto us as we have done to them, because we did them good, just get that song. It's not about me. Should I sing it again? (laughs) No, please stop. I saw you. You said, no, don't sing it again. Yeah. It's not about me, it's not about us. The moment we entertain the idea that our calling is all about us, we just don't open the door to all kinds of darkness. The moment we think, you know, I think I shared this recently with you, it's on the one hand, it's all about us because God's put a unique call in every one of us. Christ in you has a thing that only you can do. Christ in you has a unique and special purpose in life and you have got to do it. You've got to be the one to do it. One more exhortation for you graduates and and for all of you who are gonna graduate in the future and I forget to say this. You've got a safety net in your life, right? You have a family, you have a church, you have a community around you that if right now you would fall, you're not gonna end up on the street hungry and, and homeless. You have a safety net, but that safety net is not a trampoline. The safety net is not for you to go bouncing around and playing. You've got to learn how to walk your own tightrope. The purpose of a safety net is so that with, com- with the comfort of knowing if I fall right now, I'm not gonna be destroyed. Somebody said a great way of knowing your calling in life and what you really are leaning into is to answer the question, what would you do with your life if you knew you could not fail? What would you do? What would you be doing right now if you knew I'm gonna be wildly successful at this thing? You may be inching closer to understanding what your call is right now in your life if you can answer that. So you gotta learn how to walk your own tightrope, take responsibility for your own call. So on the one hand, yeah, the call of God is all about us and yet it's not about us. It's about Christ in us. The hope of glory being revealed as Christ in us, the demonstration of glory. That everything that we do, there is a name that's at stake. Everything that we do with our lives, there's a kingdom that's just waiting for us to be faithful to it so the glory of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. David began to think, this call's all about me. This dude offended me. I'm gonna take all of these men, the strength that God's added to me in my wilderness, and I'm gonna punish this dude with everything that I got. So we have to learn how to carry the weight of our calling by holding it tightly enough to steward it, to steward it well, and yet loosely enough so that we always keep God in the forefront. We've gotta learn how to make that balance. We're carrying the weight of our calling. There's nobody else who can carry it but us. But we gotta hold, so we gotta hold it tight and steward it, but we also have to keep it loosely so that God can readjust and so we can learn and hear from others to discern what's God saying right now. So, here's this one woman about to stand down a murderous horde of 400 mighty men, right? 200 stayed back with the bags. Two-thirds of them came down the hill, and they're charging, and there's this one woman about to stand in front of them. She is in the dictionary next to the Hebrew or the Yiddish word chutzpah. And single-handedly, she tames the savage beast. What verse are we up to? 
verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Man, gentlemen, start taking notes. This is what marrying material looks like right here. Let the blame be on me, and please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Don't let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood. Now, David hasn't said a word yet. Oh, look at this pretty woman. I'm not going to kill everybody. She's telling him, you're not going to follow through with this, dude. She's saying it much more charming and eloquently than that. This is what the strength of womanhood is. You know the like beauty and the beast thing? She could just put her face, put her hand on David's face and say, shh, calm down. Let's be reasonable here for a minute. A, that is a strong woman. That's a strong man too, but Abigail's a woman. That's what the strength of a woman is. You're confident enough to know that Christ in you, when you're speaking the truth, do it boldly, do it bravely, and do it unapologetically. And you go ahead and tell that ravenous horde, that murderous horde of men, you're, you're off right now, but do it wisely like Abigail did. The Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservants brought to you, my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Didn't David just say, may God so do so to the enemies of David? She said, no, 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 no. Let me remind you of something. You're the guy that fights the battles of the Lord. It's not about you. You've never been all about you. Don't let this little offense turn you away from the truth of who you are in Christ. That's a word for all of us when we've been offended. Don't let the offense of what somebody said, the offense of what somebody did make us forget. No, no, no. I am not an offendable person. I have on the inside of me the one who spoke forgiveness from the cross and offered himself in the place of those who deserve to be on it. That's who we are now. You can say, that's who I am right now. Hear the words of Abigail. You're fighting the battle of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. It's like she read the Psalms that he's been writing in the wilderness, isn't it? Do you, do you forget under the shadow of his wings and all that? I heard you singing that song out in the field. Maybe she did, maybe not. That might be an interesting twist on the story that Abigail heard David singing his psalms that he was writing from the caves out in the field. Why my trust is in the, in the Lord. What can man do to me? Remember all that, David? Remember those songs? Live the truth of your own songs right now, dude. She didn't say it like that. She's much more eloquent. 
But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. That is the wisdom that David needed to hear. David, if you follow through with this and you take revenge and there's innocent blood on your hands, do you really think that you're gonna be spared that in your own kingdom? Do you really think that you can sow that kind of the vengeance on your own behalf and not reap it in return? She is speaking the wisdom of God. Do we really believe? Look, I know that we are in Christ and all things are forgiven. And at a moment, we just turn to the Lord and everything is forgiven. But do you realize that there's still laws of sowing and reaping? That if we do things, you know, how we do, if we sow to the flesh, we'll have the flesh reap corruption. Or if we sow to the Spirit, we'll have the Spirit reap everlasting life. Sowing and reaping still happens and she appealed to David, praise God, because she saved him for tr- from all kinds of trouble at this moment moment she was right and when the Lord deals well with my Lord remember your maidservant and then David said to Abigail blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand nevertheless As the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal in the morning light so much as one male. So David received from her hand what she brought to him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I've listened to you. I've granted your request. That's courage. Courage is risking your life to speak wisdom to a murderous mob, Courage is risking your life to go and speak wisdom in a place where you don't even know for sure it's going to be received. She could have been the first one to die at David's hand. But she took that power and that anointing that she carried, the anointing of the wisdom that comes from above, and she put her hands around David's face, I mean, not literally, and said, shh. What would it be like right now if we had thousands of us with the mob violence going on in our country with the, I mean, there's just so much. It's like we live on a a powder keg right now of anger. What would it be like if we went out as those who had such a confidence in God to walk in our authority with the wisdom that comes from above, which is first of all, it says in James, peaceable. It's first of all peaceable. It doesn't go right for fisticuffs. You know, if Abigail would have come out in that field, what's wrong with you? Aren't you, you're the king, you hypocrite. How could you do it? Nobody told you to guard our sheep. Who do you think you are? That would have been her last words. But she went out with the wisdom of God. There is authority in the peaceable wisdom of God. There, there's you ever been in a, an intense situation and somebody who just carries like this calm kind of presence? You know who really carries that like, like almost nobody I've ever met? Vaughn Forney. Vaughn's one of her elders. Vaughn has this quiet way about him. Now, he's a warrior. He fought in Vietnam. He's, he knows what that's all about. But when Vaughn speaks in any gathering, in our elders meeting, Vaughn speaks, everybody gets really, really quiet, like pin drop quiet. It's like those old E.F. Hutton commercials. Sorry, that was it for all the 50 and overs or 40 and overs, right? <laughs> when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. 
that's scary. That was, that was like 50 years ago, and I still remember it. Vaughn has that peaceful kind of wisdom. So when he speaks, it's like listening to the book of Proverbs being read. What if we all walked around with that kind of wisdom? And rather than just always being ready to go, oh, come on, let's go, let's fight, let's argue, let's debate. What if we, what if we just spoke just a, a soft word of wisdom that made people walk away go, wow, I got no response to that. I can't argue with that. That was so right, so wise. And I don't think they hate me because I disagreed with them before. I think they genuinely love me and want to see the best happen in my life. What would the nation be like with a church that had that kind of holy born confidence like Abigail had? Because what Abigail did was drew the best out of David in that moment. She spoke to who was on the inside. He had this angry, murderous look on his face, but she spoke to the heart and saw in there somehow, this is a man who has God's heart. And if I can appeal to that, if I can just get through and speak to that, I'll draw the best out of him. And I'll find that he carries God's heart of mercy, that he's not a man who sheds innocent blood, that he's not somebody who desires to take revenge on his so-called enemies who refuse to respond to his acts of kindness. That somehow she was able to tap into that. What if we, what if we had eyes to see that on the inside of those who are really coming against us? What would that look like? That's wisdom. That, that's the role actually of an intercessor. That's the role of somebody who can tap into the heart of God and draw out the mercy when everything that's happening is begging for judgment. Man, what, what if we had all of our intercessors instead of hoping that God's just going to torch the place and just wipe it, you know, do a Sodom and Gomorrah on this nation. What if we had intercessors that knew how to appeal to the heart of God and knew how to tap in and say, I, we know that you desire mercy and not judgment. We know that your desire is to bless and not destroy. And I want to appeal to that God. Do you know that there was a man who did that and survived? I'll take you there in a moment because wisdom from above is, has the ability to draw out the best in people when their worst becomes manifest. And I can think of no better story to illustrate it than one of, one of Moses' many talks with God on the mountain and in the wilderness when God said, that's it, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses said, no, don't do that. Shall we go there? <laughs> Say something, should I be done? Could you believe that God actually changed his mind because somebody asked him to? <laughs> Depending how deep you are in the sovereignty of God and God's just gonna do whatever he's gonna do, this may be an offensive thought, but it, we are friends with God, right? Jesus said, I don't call you servants any longer because a servant doesn't know what his master is about. I call you friends, why? Because I want you in. I want you to know what's going on with me. I want you to, to so if I have a friend and I'm about to do something that I may not, I may regret later on. I want my friend to say, you sure you should do that? I'd like them to do it respectfully and nicely. But hey man, you gotta, if you have to speak New York, whatever. <laughs> I'd rather that than do something stupid that I'm gonna regret later on. Of course, God never does anything stupid, but let's, let's take a look at this, Exodus 32. This is Moses, he's on Mount Sinai. 
While he's up there getting the pattern for the tabernacle and he's getting the, not just the Ten Commandments, but most of the commandments of God, he's, God's going to show him, this is how you can have me in your midst and survive because I'm a consuming fire. Here's how you approach my presence. Here's how you live with my presence in your midst. There's going to be a tabernacle. There's going to be sacrifices. There's going to be priests. And there's going to be a high priest and he's going to be your brother Aaron. Do you know what Aaron happened to be doing while Moses was on the mountain and talking with God about how the tabernacle was going to work, Aaron, brother of Moses, soon to be anointed high priest, was making a golden calf down below and saying to Israel, behold your God. And when Moses came down, I'm not going to read this part. Moses came down off the mountain. He said, Aaron, dude, what are you doing? You're making us look bad. God just said our family, the Levites, we're going to be, we're going to be his priests. We're going to be in, I'm paraphrasing. You know what Aaron said? He said, you know, I collected all this gold from the people and we just put it in this pot and out popped this calf. I'm not making it up. Go and read it. That's what he said. Like a two-year-old who's got chocolate all over his face. Did you eat all the M&M's? No. That's Aaron about to be the high priest. Tell me God's not merciful. (laughs) Tell me God can't overlook the stupidity that we get ourselves into and still keep us on the call of God for our lives. He's making, a go- do you get this? I'm just, I've been thinking about this for two weeks and I'm still blown away by this. He's making a golden calf and God's telling Moses, Aaron, here's how you're going to anoint him high priest. Here's the clothes he's going to wear. Here's how you mix the oil to anoint him. And he's going to be the dude who stands between people and me so that I don't bring judgment on their sin. <laughs> so anyway, Moses hears this. All right, so I'm going to go back. Moses, all right, where, where did I start there, Megan? Because this is one of those chapters hard to jump into. First seven. We'll start in verse seven then. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You ever, parents, you ever have that argument in the car or something like, hey, you see what your son's doing right now? <laughs> this is Moses and God, but this is how friends talk to each other. I think with a wink in his eye, God said, hey, Moses, your people <laughs> that you brought out of Egypt. I mean, yeah, because obviously you parted the sea and you brought 10 plagues on Egypt. <laughs> you brought them out. Now look, now look what you've done. <laughs> they have quickly turned away from the way I commanded them and they've made for themselves a molten calf and they've worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and they're an obstinate people. So then leave me alone so that my anger might burn against them and I might destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. <laughs> now, if you have any of the it's all about me in you, this is a very appealing thing. Because he's already, he's only been in the wilderness with these guys for a few weeks and they've already blamed him for all their problems. They said every day they find something else to complain about. It is literally like having a pack of two-year-olds in the backseat of the car for a 25-hour drive. Are we there yet? I mean, (laughs) and here's Moses. I can imagine the temptation. Every parent in the room, don't lie. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, that'd be great. Start over. 
We're kidding, kids. We would never actually do that. But they're moments. They're moments. God came to Moses in that kind of a moment. And Moses, because he's a friend of God, Moses, like David, understood God's heart, carried God's heart. Remember, he, he talked face to face with God from the burning bush on that day. He understood who God was. He knew God's character and God's nature. And something rose up in Moses and he replied, he's going to serve as an intercessor and draw the best out of God. Remember, remind God, if that's even possible, of what he really would prefer to do. Remember what God's favorite response to sin is? Is to show mercy. That's his favorite thing to do. His favorite thing to do when our weaknesses and our failures result in sinful behavior is to say, I forgive you. Let's just be restored and let's go get a soda together. That's God's preferred plan. So Moses entreated the Lord his God. He's going to do an Abigail right now. Entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people (laughs) whom you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing this to your people. A man dared to get in God's face and say, would you please change your mind about this? This is going to mess with all kinds of theology. If I go back, this is why I dropped out of seminary so I didn't have to bother with all the theology around this kind of stuff. I'm just kidding. Did God already know that he was going to extend mercy and not wipe them all out? Or did Moses actually help God turn aside from what he was about to do? If you're on the camp of the sovereignty of God, he always knows what he's going to do. He's already lived it before we have. Then Moses, then this was just kind of a test for Moses. But if you believe that God actually interacts with us and allows us to draw things out of him, whether judgment or mercy, then Moses just saved Israel's life. You can decide. I won't tell you what to believe. I'm just here to make you think, not tell you what to think. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I've spoken, I'll give to your descendants. They will inherit it forever. And so the Lord changed his mind about the harm he said he would do to his people. Some of your Bibles may have that word, the Lord repented. The Lord turned. That's what the word repent, one of the words for repent means to literally turn around and go a different direction than you were going to go before. This is a fascinating Hebrew word. I've been stewing on this, meditating on it for the last couple of weeks, and I'm just enthralled with this aspect of what it means to carry God's heart, that that how we live, how we pray, the decisions that we make, the wisdom that we live with, is to connect with God's heart in such a way that we draw out from God the things that we need, the best of what we have to offer. And in this case, it's gonna be for mercy's sake. So change this mind is the Hebrew word nacham. It could be translated to grieve. That's the literal translation of the word itself. To grieve something, to be brokenhearted about something that's happened in front of you and to offer a sigh. Now there's a lot of different kind of sighs, aren't there? It can also be translated to comfort. Uh, Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they nacham me, they comfort me can also mean to stroke the face, and I'll explain what that means in a moment. 
Now, size can come in many shapes and sizes, can't they? If God looked down at Israel worshiping a golden calf, most of us would think if God was nachaming right now over that, he'd be, oh, I can't believe they're doing this again. Because that's how we'd respond to it. But it says that this sigh came after Moses entreated him. So what if God was listening to the words of Moses, looking at Moses' face, face to face like at the burning bush? I need my daughter here. I need somebody that wouldn't be uncomfortable with this. <laughs> I need it. Uh, what can I borrow? Can I borrow a book? Can I borrow Ken a book for a second? Kenna, can I? Please, I've known you since you were a baby. Come on, it's all right. Come on. I want to show you the, the picture of what I believe went down here when Moses talked to God on the mountain. You ever, when somebody does something that makes you just, it's like you fall in love all over again. Oh, Taya's in the back. <laughs> I didn't see you there. I thought you were in nursery. Do you want to do this? All right, come on. I already have you up here. So you're going to pretend this is my daughter. I do love you like a daughter. Um, when, when your kids would do something that just, like it blows you away. They just did something so amazing that it's like you just feel this rush of love. Like you just fell in love with them all over again. Like, they, you know, they, they come and they do that, oh, daddy, or... You know, they, they say something like, Daddy, you're the best. Daddy, I'm so glad that God gave you to me for a daddy. And, and the response of it is to go, oh. mm. That's Nakam. This is uncomfortable yet. <laughs> to stroke the face is another way of translating that word. It's as if to say, Oh my goodness, I can't believe you. What did I do to deserve a daughter like you? And your father can do that for real when you get home. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming up. And <laughs> you can go back to your seat now. Thank you, Jesus, she said. <laughs> I didn't see my daughters in the back. You got out of it this time, but I'll preach this one again someday. Mm -hmm. To stroke the face. It was as if God looked at Moses on the mountain, and there's Moses interceding, saying, God, you don't really want to do this. I know that it's not what you want to do. And God went, Oh, I found one. I found one who in a moment would have been probably happy to join me and said, yeah, let's get him. That's ridiculous. I can't believe they're making a golden calf. That was one of the gods you judged in Egypt. That would be awesome. Let's just torch him and me and my family will start over. And instead, Moses said, you don't want to do this. And God just looked at him and said, oh, like a sigh of relief. I found somebody who's gonna love my people the way that I love them. And in wrath, remember mercy. I found somebody who gets me, who carries my heart. I found somebody who's not gonna let their anger so burn against people that they perceive to be my enemies, that they're gonna stay mad at them and hope that something evil comes their way. I found somebody, God in his grief, breathed a sigh of relief because he found someone who would love his people like he did and serve as their intercessor. Moses interceded. And whether you believe that he actually changed God's plan in mind, like God literally would have wiped out Israel or not, it really doesn't matter. The point is that representing God's heart means our intercession draws out from God all of his goodness, 
all of his mercy, all of his loving kindness, all of what he really wants to pour out, he's just looking for us as carriers of his heart to draw it from him in our intercession and the way we live our lives. So if even God can have the best of his character and nature drawn out by his friends, then we have to ask ourselves, how easy is it for us? How easy is it for us when we're on a path, when anger is gonna come bursting out, or revenge is gonna be our plan and path, or when, something, when we're thinking evil thoughts and hoping some calamity comes to those who have harmed us, how easy is it for us to be entreated by the wisdom of God around us? David, the man after God's own heart, the man carrying God's heart for his part, he didn't destroy Nabal's house. Abigail succeeded in drawing the best out of him in that moment. You imagine going, I mean, you know the adrenaline rush when you're about to go and do something? David's got that adrenaline rush and just Abigail's soft words turned him away from that wrath and drew out of him the best of who he was. Moses in the middle of God, I mean, he's face to face with God who's ready to destroy everything, drew out from God the best that he had. Stubbornness isn't a fruit of the Spirit. If there is somebody or some ones that you are ready to say, man, I really hope something bad happens to that person. We just close our eyes for a minute so I can pray for you. You don't need to lift your hand or anything like that. You and God alone know if you're carrying those kind of thoughts. I can assure you that the longer you carry that on the inside of you, the more it's going to eat away at your soul, the more you are going to find yourself being tempted to take actual action whether you ever get a chance to exact revenge or not, you'll at least end up gossiping about them or even slandering them or doing something to ruin their lives in whatever way you have power to do it. Let's be free of that today. Let's let the, the wisdom of God come and draw out of us the best of what Christ in us desires to do, which is to bless those even who curse us. God, I pray that you would set us free and, and get us off a course of either trying to exact revenge or hoping that something happens to those who've harmed us. Today we say we are free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Turn our hearts toward mercy, Lord. Turn our hearts toward forgiveness. Turn our hearts toward the wisdom that will reconcile that relationship. Help us to live and walk as children of light, children of love, Children who desire nothing in return but to have good fellowship with all of God's children. Friends of God, meaning the ones who know and carry his heart, can be trusted always to lean in toward mercy. So if we find ourselves desiring anything but mercy for those who have wronged us, then I urge you, let the words of Abigail, let the words of Moses entreat you. Let the wisdom of God come. He's always desiring reconciliation. Father, make us so. I pray that there will be fruit from this word in the lives and in the relationships that we have. God, I pray that there would be open doors for us to reconnect with those who have severed fellowship with us. Those who acted as though they were our enemies, I pray that this would be a turnaround season for those relationships. We prophesy into that. It's a turnaround season. Wait for it, look for it with eager anticipation. Turn toward mercy. Hallelujah. Amen.